<sighs> so, you know, it's 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 Labor Day weekend. That's exciting. It's fake Labor Day. Uh, Dragon Con is happening. Everyone is lining up to get coughed on by their favorite Star Trek B-list actors. And God bless everyone. I can't be mad at them. Like, I appreciate that there is insurance stuff and like they can't cancel unless there's a re an emergency and Governor Kemp refuses to do one. But wow, there's a lot. And like the capacity has always been infinite because it's in no building. So it's everywhere. And this is going to be a real shit show because between that and everyone having not been a person for 18 months in public, I'm sure there will be violence of some kind or just stupidness or somebody throws a chair. Everyone's jokerified. You're listening to Gay Space Communism, America's only super duper leftist and really kind of hypercritical Star Trek podcast. I am, of course, Paul Byron, the loud one, uh, and I am joined by some of my favorite co-hosts and one of our favorite now recurring guests. Sound off, team. Hey, y'all. I'm Amy. It's so great to be here again. Hi, uh, this is Corey. And look, we're and again, as we are often having to get our dress uniforms dry cleaned because we are doing a lot of guests and it's a lot of fun to get to talk to all these wonderful people. We've got someone we love very much. It's the Star Trek communist himself. Hello, commissar and comrade. Hello, thanks for having me back again. Although I do emphasize I am one of many Star Trek communist comrades out there, but always a pleasure. It would be lonely by yourself on the bridge of that other, that Constitution class, pulling your Beverly Crusher. <laughs> exactly. And I wouldn't be doing a good job of, of spreading communism if I was the only one. So happy to be back on gay space communism. How could I not be? It's me, the only agitprop person for gay... Oh no, <laughs> I've done a bad job. <laughs> Oh, well, welcome, Will. So let's get started. It's our usual, you, we're doing, let's, we're back to stock. We've been doing some weird stuff lately. We did our Afghanistan episodes, which released months ago, I guess. Uh, so let's talk about what we've been watching because there's been new stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, Lower Decks is, is season two is underway. I know, Corey, you're not allowed to watch it yet because it is I am. right of your time scale. Oh, you are. That's right. I forgot you got yeah. through all the way through all the TNG and sort of into, like, now you are able to watch it chronologically as appropriate. Yep, yep, I am. I'm watching right now and was really, really annoyed to get through season one of Lower Decks and figure out that I was going to have to wait each week for new episodes. Like, what is that bullshit? <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. I like having something to wait for, but I get it. If you were totally used to just watching like 700 plus episodes like on demand, all of a sudden waiting, it's a big switch. I don't know how you would have gotten conditioned to like that kind of thing or what would have driven you to that experience. But wow, to imagine waiting a whole week for a television show, a Star Trek episode even. 18 months of being locked in my apartment and, you know, nothing but Netflix to keep me company, which by the way, I've heard that Star Trek is leaving Netflix soon and I'm very upset about it. Yeah, well, they need to get you to, you need to pay for the Young Sheldon Network. Yeah, this poses a problem for our show. So I think that so like that makes me think of something that I've read about the way Netflix shows are structured and something that I found bore out in my watching a lot of them is that like a lot of them just do not carry. They do not make you care. Like if you had to watch them week to week, you would not hold it like it is a oh, you must watch all of Orange is the New Black, for example, in a weekend or you will just stop caring about the characters and the thread and the plot. Whereas which is Star Trek, it is nice to see at very least that it continues to hold that draw of like, oh, every week I want to know what these people are doing. I care about their experiences, their adventures. I want to, yeah, see what's happening there. I think that's something we don't, we certainly don't get a huge amount of because everything is all releases at once for the most part. And like, I think broadcast TV is one of the few places that does that. And even Star Trek is moving out of that and into just a stream drop. I mean, a stream only, which I feel like that's a missed opportunity. 
Yeah. Anyway, other news is uh, LeVar Burton may or may not at this point in time, as of this recording, be the host of Jeopardy. But golly, he should be because we sure got the shitbag out of there fast. It only took like listening to one of his podcasts. It's wild that Sony didn't do any of this vetting. Anyway. I mean, based on the release schedule, LeVar Burton will have been the second choice for at least four candidates running room it's absurd he should have gotten it straight up i mean is this is some dick cheney bullshit like the long search is over and i have selected myself get the fuck out of here dude oh well also i picked the uh anti-vax lady from blossom and big bang theory you remember her y'all yeah. like her right she's very popular and universally yeah. loved because that show's <laughs> so good everyone thinks it's so good wait she's anti-vax she was, I mean, she, okay, so like that's several years ago. I don't want to over-characterize her position, but she definitely was like, well, this does, I don't know. And like sort of one of the more moderated, let's space out vaccinations kind of people, which is un ultimately a lot of that is very dangerous yeah. and disingenuous, right? Because it's just designed to like yeah. sow the seed of all of this. Which again, there's plenty of reason for that to take hold because it's entirely easy to distrust the medical system. Amy, you got anything for that today? This week, how are your adventures in navigating medicine by yourself? Apparently, oh yeah, it's no, been we don't great. have to do we don't have to do that if you don't want. But I mean, I notice that this is something that you come up with a lot. Is that you have to you have yeah, to do um, your own care. Yeah, I have to say, it turns out I read a paper this week about um, how horse estrogen may be more effective than synthetics. Horstrogen, we call it. Yeah, horstrogen. So, I don't know. I showed that paper to my doctor. She was very happy to get that brand new information to her. And, um, you know, in the future, we might want to consider using natural estrogens as an effective antiandrogen. But in the meantime, I'm starting progesterone. Big W. Big W in the T column. <laughs> But anyway, what I have learned is that you are definitely on your own in the medical community. And it's not entirely doctors' fault. They do have to learn about literally everything that could happen to a body. This is new shit for a bunch of them. Nobody teaches them this at school. That being said, should be your job. Yeah. Honestly, I'd dearly like to go back in time to when, like, Jill Stein was trying to, like, talk about vaccines and distrust of the medical system and, like, be open-minded to a more nuanced take. <laughs> Because now it's freaking awful. Well, turns out you can't really trust anything, and we've learned that now. And that's the that's why we love the fantasy of Star Trek. It's a place where institutions you can trust. Oh no, it's the McKee. That's our topic, dearest me. So we will be discussing institutional trust and varying degrees of that and challenges presented by it. Will, this was your push to talk about the McKee, which is, they're great. Like, why? Why do you want to talk about these weirdos living on the fringe of space that won't just go fucking home to characterize them in the worst possible way? So I think I, first off, I applaud you and I thank you for, uh, you know, allowing me to be on here because I, when I made that tweet last week, I actually, there was a lot of interest from it. I didn't, I didn't realize it was going to have that much engagement and like, you know, I've been on other podcasts already talking about it. I think it's like a very surprising issue that a lot of people grabbed onto. But at the same time, I think that was my point when I made that tweet. It was like, it's actually a, a really underrated, underappreciated story point. It's a story point that developed between three series, right? So we've got Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, there's a through line through all those types of stuff. In a lot of ways, a shared universe plot point before shared universes were in vogue. And it actually, much like a Deep Space Nine, is very unique in the sense that up to this point, there hasn't really been a revisiting of the plot points and themes that the Maki question arise from. But just like with anything else, it's massively contradictory. Just like how Star Trek, of course, we like to talk about it as a, a 
pretty good example of space communism, of anti-capitalist politics. It's still very much a commercial property. It's still very much run by Paramount and Viacom, CBS. In the same way that the Maquis have these revolutionary trappings, although it also suffers from the massive contradictions of, of what happens when liberals write this story. So it's this thing that ultimately, unfortunately, literally they just have to write it out. Basically, they write it out of the show. They write it out of the universe eventually because they wanted to go on and do other things, namely the Dominion War and whatever Voyager became, right? They're just like, let's just wrap up this thing that kind of didn't really go anywhere, which for us is disappointing. But for now, looking back at it, I think there's a lot that you can glean from it. And again, I think you can look at it from a Marxist perspective, which I think we will do today. But also just as a Star Trek fan, I think it's underappreciated in terms of like what it brought to the universe. And it brought a lot of good stuff. You know, you saying that makes me think of one thing that I thought Voyager did really, really well with the Maquis storyline, which is that, you know, kind of at the beginning of Voyager, obviously the circumstances of the, the premise of the show kind of forced everybody to like say, okay, you know, that was what we were doing before. We're in a new situation. We've got to realign ourselves to our new reality. And there was an adjustment period and they did spend a few different episodes talking about that. But there was that story several seasons later and it was after they established regular communications with Starfleet and they started getting letters from home and they found out that the whole Maquis movement had been destroyed and how heavily that impacted psychologically and they spent several episodes on this both Chakote and Balana and I really appreciated that they did that because you know it, it could have so easily just been another thing that they threw away but by really investing in the the emotional significance to both of those two characters in particular it said a lot about what that movement was actually about that it wasn't just about you know a bunch of people that were being stubborn about treaty parameters. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's Chakotay and Bolana are the more interesting characters on Voyager. And we can get into that far. It's a far, it's a topic for another day. Absolutely. Is how Chakotay was incredibly, you know, mangled as a character and how offensive he was in a lot of ways. Oh, don't worry. Uh, We've hit it a little bit already. But yeah, exactly. that, that's a whole, that could be, it's a whole, yeah, we'll leave that. Just shuffle it off to the side with Cass and let all that slide away. And on our future yeah. episode, if we actually don't like Star Trek. <laughs> It's true. Uh, but the elements that if, go... Wait, wait. I just want to stop that. Right, once, I'm sorry. If you can't destroy the thing you love, you don't love it. If you don't hate it because of its flaws, you don't actually love it. You just kind of like it a bunch. And that's fine, um, but you don't act... My hate of the thing you love should not be deeper than your love of it. Will, please go on. Uh, tell me you have manacles in your bedroom without telling me you have manacles in your bedroom, Paul. Uh, sorry, they're called womanacles. Uh, this is a progressive household. No, that's <laughs> Will. I'm sorry. Please. What? I don't know. I'm fucking. I'm. I'm it's a very weird day for me. I apologize yeah, to everyone. Okay. <laughs> don't apologize for us. We can't be helped, and they're listening anyway. Uh, no, I think I think I think that's a good point about how you know the elements of Chakotay and Bolana. The interesting parts about them are in a lot of ways the Maquis parts about them. Now, of course, there are things in Voyager we end up going in, and this is again another topic for another day about Voyager. But the thing about the Maquis is what are they? Who are they? In a lot of ways, let's start with the weaknesses. The weaknesses are they're just like sometimes written in very broad terms, right? They're just angry people. 
they're angry, irrational, stubborn people, right? So you attract people like a Tom Paris, you know, Bolana Torres, a Ro Laren, Tom Riker, right? They have problems with authority. They have a problems with uh, adjusting the malcontents, right? That's one way to take a look at it. But I think over time, as the Maki storyline was being developed, especially later on, you kind of moved away from like, what was the initial issue that was, was uh, at play? And the initial issue at play was Journey's End. So TNG attorney general was this was clearly a parallel towards Native Americans, indigenous people being displaced, right? And they're saying in the future, we're going to take this actually very interesting idea and say, you know what, in order to rectify what had happened in the past, they literally left Earth, right? And who would have thought that the sins from the past goes, and even it's, it's a huge plot point, right? The sins of the past kind of catching up, right? But the Maquis were not named in Journey's End, but the seed was created there, right? That was going to be an issue with these colonies on this, uh, with the border with the Cardassians and the Federation. And then from there, it went on to preemptive strike with Rolaren defecting, which is, by the way, one of the best episodes of TNG. And it's often very forgotten about because it makes Picard look bad, right? But that's what made it so good, right? It's, it's that actually Ro likes Picard, strikes Picard, and, he's, and she's still willing to live up to her ideals, right? And her cause, right? But what was that cause? The cause was they assumed, we all assumed that the treaty was in good faith. The Admiral Chief her, herself says, we all gave up some Something, right? We all sympathize with the Maquis. We get it, but we needed to do something. They lost something. We lost something. It's a fair deal. And that's the initial premise that Picard works with, too, that it's inherently it's a fair deal. But that supposes a lot of things about the Federation. And if you look at canon, how many bad admirals are there, right? You can count the good admirals on like one hand or maybe two fingers, right? Maybe Admiral Picard, maybe Admiral Janeway, maybe Admiral Kirk for a hot second, but like that's about it. They're all bad for the most part, right? They're all bad, incompetent, like within Starfleet. Your Kirk, your Picard. No, it is largely bad. It is, I mean, the working class aesthetic of the show that it is ultimately the people doing the job that have to say, no, we have to stop doing the bad thing. Like you're looking at the situation going, no. And one of the things we talked about is the authority to say that, to invoke the prime directive and like, hey, our rules are being violated by this action. And someone actually backs you. Maybe you get court-martialed later. They don't tell us. Maybe you all end up at the labor camp with Tom Paris. Yeah. So, uh, it, it suggests a huge rot at the at the heart of Starfleet, a bureaucracy, right? And everyone's disobeying orders, right? So what does that actually mean? So we can uh, infer that that maybe the treaty in and of itself wasn't a good deal, and that did the actual people legitimately have a voice in setting up the parameters of this treaty, right? They just assume the Federation Council did it, the Starfleet Command did it, right? But it begs the question. Who actually calls the shots within the Federation, right? It's assumed that it's a democracy, although as a communist, we would obviously call it a bourgeois democracy because there's nothing within the Federation that suggests uh, the existence of legitimate workers' democracy, the workers' Soviets, councils, right? Within Starfleet, uh, it's very top down. The senior officers make all the decisions. It's alluded to in Lower Decks all the time that the senior officers are incompetent. They take all the glory from the lower officers, right? So it suggests that there might be a planned economy. There are human needs that are met or the needs of people are met and it's a huge step forward from where we are today there aren't legitimate there isn't legitimate control from people right over their own lives let alone the decisions of this bureaucracy of this organization right and i think that sets the stage to say okay if you agree that this is a rational agreement then the maquis are inherently unreasonable people but if they're not then they actually have a legitimate case to be made here and has to start from that analysis right if you assume that what they're telling you at face value is actually true so 
you, you talk about the bureaucracy and we, we've talked about this a little bit before about how there is a ton of bureaucracy in Starfleet specifically because it is essentially the Navy and, and that is inherent in military organizations, which is what Starfleet ultimately is. So yeah, they call themselves peaceful explorers and scientists, but they're, they're the military, they're the Navy in space. It's not as clear for the rest of the Federation how much that bureaucracy is also a factor. Like we don't have a very clear picture of the way the rest of the economy works in the Federation. Like let's even if we just say on Earth, like are there more of those kinds of like worker collectives? We don't know because we don't really have a clear picture of that. But I would say that looking at the Maquis specifically, like one of the things that always frustrated me about the Maquis storyline in DS9 is mostly the way that it the, the storyline worked with Cisco's character because Cisco's my favorite captain but he just had this like irrational like visceral hatred of the Maquis and it was all about you betrayed your uniform you betrayed the organization you betrayed the system and I'm angry about that here's a guy that fucking goes off and like you know becomes wormhole Jesus and like <laughs> defies all kinds of parameters of his own bureaucracy Tells the Bajor not to join the Federation. Right. Like it just busts in in his uniform. He's like, "Hey, everybody, don't do the thing." And they're like, "Dude, you are you're out. You are not in charge here anymore. You're fired. You're so fired." He does that all the time. He defies the the bureaucratic institution himself constantly. But he had this just irrational. And I think it was it was just a storytelling conceit, you know, a way for the, the writers. I will to dispute this. I will dispute the irrationality. I'll call it personal, okay. right? Like, because okay, looking at Cal Hudson, that's a that's someone he looked up to and trust. Looking at yeah. Michael Eddington, that is a person again. He thought he was like supposed to be arm in arm with. These are not necessarily ideological problems. It feels like for Cisco, because certainly you can't square them with the rest of his conduct. But if you view them as deeply personal betrayals by a trusted friend and someone who is absolutely supposed to like have your back on this, that's at least I am willing to give happy to give him at least a little bit of the benefit of the doubt here because he is also one of our more Kirk-like, let me hammer punch it in the face, captains. That's really like leans in on the on the feel on right. the the gut feeling, and I like that about. It. He's one of the best captains for it. But I, you know, I will not get, let him fall entirely into irrational hatred of the McKee. He has irrational hatred for like two or three of these guys right i feel i don't well, know okay and I think that's, that's that's fair that's fair i mean he definitely directs it at those two in particular but what's interesting about like the point that you were just making well is that really what the mckee were doing is they were leaving the bureaucratic structure of starfleet specifically those that were part of starfleet they were becoming something else and so yeah there would obviously be conflict between bureaucratic institution that they are departing from and doing something different with and the fact that they dared to explore that was an affront to some people like Picard affront to Cisco but you know to others was more like even Miles said that yeah he kind of understood why they were why they were doing it you know Miles the union guy you know, I always felt it was a, like, when I'm in my first watch through a DS9, it was a little incongruous that Cisco would have that kind of outburst. You know, like, I had to get used to it. But it makes a lot of sense that somebody like Rick Berman would have that out outburst. Like, I could see a lot of people in the Star Trek industrial complex putting those words in Cisco's mouth. Yeah, I think these are all good points. I think one important piece regarding Cisco that I think is often forgotten about is the fact that Cassidy Yates is a Maquis, right? In that episode for the cops, right, where Eddington reveals that he's in fact a double agent, it's also revealed that Cassidy Yates is a Maquis sympathizer and in fact has been supplying in the village. And I think it's 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 always forgotten about 
because it's written in a different way. But you she know? does time for that shit. She, she does, does several time. years in prison over in space jail or whatever. Space and then she comes back later on and then no one talks about it ever again, right? No one really talks about the fact that that was how that episode ended, right? They literally had her, he had her arrested and she, she said, you know what? I know what I did. I have my cause. You have your cause, right? It was actually a really great episode. But people forget because the Eddington thing takes over it. But Cassidy, which is why also, by the way, Cassidy is a great character, and again, completely underappreciated, she has her own values. She has her own cause, right? She's not Starfleet. She's a freighter captain of the Zosa. She has her own agenda, and not in a bad way. She has her own agency, and in fact, she has the exact opposite cause to the captain of the of deep space nine right but it's never talked about ever again but it shows you that there is something legitimate there is something genuine what is appealing to these people to actually step away and it's never alluded to directly it's never spoken to directly because i think the writers didn't really know what to do with it right how do you articulate something that's in opposition to what your protagonists have said is always great. This is the better world that we want and unbalanced, like the Federation is a step forward than in a lot of ways where we are right now. And yet, how do you break that down? And I think in a lot of ways, the writers couldn't make the protagonist look too bad. You couldn't make them completely unsympathetic. You had to take the protagonist side for the most part, right? So then you had to write the Maquis as being, you know, stubborn, irrational, you know, they just... Or that uh, they're policing them for their own good because otherwise the Cardassians will just wipe them off the face of whatever with some kind of space laser because they have no compunction about well see it's, it's us with the rubber bullets that you should be thankful for we're using the less lethal phasers on you yeah so i think on the one hand you could extrapolate and this is the fun part of being a star trek fan because you fill in the gaps and being a marxist is kind of filling the gaps too is what would appeal to people to actually go out to these colonies if their material needs are already met ostensibly on earth because earth's a paradise cisco himself says it's easy to be a saint in paradise right these people have left why would they leave right and one could say yeah, there was a bureaucratic morass a mentality of of resting on your laurels. They wanted to expand. They Not expand territorially, perhaps, but they wanted to challenge themselves. They wanted to have an adventure. They wanted to not just have an adventure, but also to build something. We assume that these colonies are, you know, uninhabited, right? They didn't have a displaced and indigenous population. We don't know that for sure. But we assume that, okay, maybe they did do that. But the idea of it is they were alienated from life in the Federation for a variety of reasons. I would imagine because they, had a, they actually had lack of control in the running of their society, truly. So they wanted to actually begin to exercise that control that agency in these colonies that they established themselves and for a long time they were able to make it work until they ran into another problem that they couldn't resolve which is the Cardassian question which I think is Whoa. an interesting question because again ultimately it's written to become a way where it becomes reactionary in the reactionary in the sense that over time the Maquis cause just becomes an anti-Cardassian cause meaning like all Cardis are terrible you know the Cardassians are monsters and it, and that's inherently not a Star Trek message. We see Antifa are the real fascists. Yeah. And you see it in The Wounded where, you know, O'Brien has a, the scars of fighting on set like three. And he has his hatred of the Cardassians, but understands that that's probably coming from a bad place. And the same thing happens with the Maquis, right? And the same thing you can kind of sort of see with Kira and the Bajoran resistance, where there are shades of similarity. The Bajoran resistance is different than what the Maquis were, but the common denominator is resisting the Cardassians, right? And even Kira herself over time said, there are good elements within Cardassian. The Cardassian distant movement, Takeni Gamor, Natima Lang, right? We understand that there's actually a huge oppressed working class within the Cardassians that actually don't want to go down the route of the Obsidian Order and, and Central Command, right? So imagine what if the Maquis had actually generalized their 
struggle to say, yeah, you know what? The fact that we are isolated, the fact that we have been abandoned by the Federation, everyone in the in the quadrant have been abandoned by the ruling classes. In Cardassia, you've been abandoned. On Romulus, maybe the Remans, this underclass that exists are completely oppressed. The Klingons, we know there's a caste society there. What if the Maquis had actually were able to generalize their struggle? And in fact, now that I put on my Marxist hat, that's exactly how real struggles survive in the real world, is that they actually generalize that struggle to become a class struggle, right? Is that we understand their individual oppressions, but to, to eliminate the basis of that oppression to begin with, you have to unite it on a class basis, right? Morlocks of the galaxy unite. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of those kind of planets in the Federation, though, where it's like, oh, what's this? Oh, we have all these people that live underground and mine the minerals. They love it down there. And you're like, hang on. Like, did anyone check yeah. y'all before we let you into the Federation? Or what's that? And they're like, no, we just have dilithium. You're like, oh, shit. Yeah, well, you're in. Sorry. You just gave me like an image of the army of EMHs that got turned into mining operators joining the Maquis. Holy shit. There's an entire species <laughs> and sort of a, Why a, not? There's a treatment of this question in Voyager where the humanoids are at war yeah. with photonic beings and he has to live inside Seven of Nine for like a, the whole episode. And it's a fun, you know, they're having a good time doing the two characters, one body thing. But like, yeah, this is a projected world. We're like, oh, you built all these EMHs. And they're like, I'm sorry. What is? No, I don't want to clean the sewage reactor. This is terrible. Fuck you. We don't even poop. And I think, yeah, that speaks to that being. A, yeah, I, I like that a lot that the yeah, the EMH is ultimately afraid of the people because they're going to murder him because he would put his hands inside them and then hard light them around their hearts and destroy them, which is that's how I do it. Where I a holic. Anyway, Moriarty stuff aside, let's talk about some specifics. Well, right? this whole like, line because... of inquiry. Yeah, I mean, it, it proposes like a, a different kind of headcanon for the Star Trek universe than we've been working for. Like, but look at the evidence. I think there's a lot of evidence looking at McKee, looking at the fact that people want to go ahead and colorize or colonize instead of staying on Earth. A whole lot of evidence that maybe, maybe Star Trek the show only shows us the sort of tourist regions of Earth. You know, maybe Starfleet and Star Trek is just as bad as the Cardassians in the end. And what Lower Decks is leading to is a um, time of upheaval. I mean, I would, I would hope that they would potentially go down that route. But there's a part of me that strongly doubts that because it's still very much a commercial property. So they can't, they have to reset it a little bit, right? They can't, it, they can't break the mold completely. They can't go completely. You know, I wish, I wish Lower Decks would go down that route because it, it begs that question. It, it, it's literally setting it up in terms of workers control. Why don't the Lower Decks elect their own officers and recall them at any time? Elect their captains, right? Elect their senior officers because that would go against everything that's been established quote unquote in canon, right? And you see that Starfleet is a massive contradiction. 19th century fun fact, you do get to do that on a pirate ship. You, if you do? don't like it, you just space him. That's, and you know, hence our motto, space the rich. But yeah, this is a, a feature of other well, we... of other kinds of voting, right? Like other systems have had this and they rejected it very hard. You're like, oh no, the British Navy was not a fan. It, was, it sucked to be on those boats and you became a pirate because it was like, okay, well, what if we just did it? Because we know how this all works and we elect a captain, they get a share and a half. And if we don't like how they do it, we either bring them back down to the galley with the rest of us or we throw them overboard. And this is a, it is a relatively democratic mechanism for uh, dealing with your work relationship. Well, Discovery actually had an opportunity to do this. I mean, they, they fast forwarded to another century where the Federation no longer existed. And they could have said, OK, there were a lot of problems with the way the Federation worked before. Let's fix it. Let's change the way we're going to like structure our society. And instead, they're like, you know, what we should do is let's rebuild the thing that wasn't working right the first time. And that's the massive contradiction of these things. Build back better. 
Yeah, exactly, right? It's those, <laughs> it's the massive contradiction of Trek too, because as much as we can read into a Marxist reading of it, a socialist reading of it, a communist reading of it, you could also make a, a strong case that it's space liberalism as well. And they're not wrong too, because it's also written by, for the most part, Hollywood fighters, who for the most part are liberals, who for the most part are like, you know, DNC type voters, right? So their question with Star Trek is always a question of these ideals in the abstract. We need to have tolerance, acceptance, diversity. They're all good ideas, right? Science, inquiry, diplomacy, talking things through. Again, in the abstract, these are all good things. No one dispute those types of things. But liberalism said, puts it in a different category. They say that in and of itself, in the abstract, can achieve the Star Trek future. We just got to talk to our enemies. We just got to have a, a scientific mind. We can science our way out of these things. And as a Marxist, we understand that's not true because there are literally opposite positions that develop the social relations, right? The social relations aren't developed in an abstract, right? The social relations develop from the fact that who has more, who has less, who produces those things, who controls those things, and who determines what gets done, right? So that's why Star Trek, I think, ultimately just falls down this trap of just saying, we just got to appeal to our enlightened selves, right? Our, our noble angels, right? These amorphous concepts of good and evil that exist in the abstract, right? Whereas we understand that's not true as Marxists. We understand that that's not actually true. That there are irreconcilable class differences. And th there's a struggle, right? That needs to be fought, that needs to be, be waged. And that's why Deep Space Nine, in a lot of ways, is my favorite Trek, although Lower Decks is really giving it a run for its money, because it begins to ask those questions, although in a distorted way, it at least begins to deconstruct it, right? Lower Decks deconstructs Trek, Deep Space Nine deconstructs Trek. The Maquis in and of itself is a deconstruction, although it's very distorted, about saying like, yeah, is Starfleet all it's cracked up to be? Is the Federation all it's cracked up to be? And that's an interesting thing, right? Because for the most part, they are shown to be, they have some legitimate concerns. They have legitimate complaints and grievances against the, the Federations, how it's portrayed, though, eventually, it gets portrayed as like a romantic struggle by Eddington. It's portrayed as, you know, we just got to kill all the Cardassians, right? It's also the liberal interpretation of what revolutionary struggles are. It's all guerrillaism. It's all just running in the fields, hit and run tactics. That's it. Whereas as Marxists, we understand the greatest strength is organizing the working class on a political basis, right? It cannot just be guerrillaism, right? If the Maquis wanted to win, they should have organized the lower decks and Starfleet to stop and halt starships from moving and shut down utopia niche of, you know, shipyards, right? That's real power. Oh, I'm not sorry, just... Captain. I just got to clean out all of these conduits and we yeah. would be happy. I, I, I would love to fire the phasers. I assure you the deflector dish is just all wonky right now. And we have got all these people working on it. Double time. Promise. Garrett, promise. The thing is, like, Eddington was a shitty Maquis because, like, he, he, he was in it for his own ego, I feel like. He just, he, he's, like, that dude that, like, sees a cool thing happening and, like, you know, sees it as his... He wasn't going to get anywhere in Starfleet. He was never going to end up as an admiral in Starfleet. So he just saw that as his path to, uh, like, ascendancy, which is, like, very cishet white dude. <laughs> just pretty much tracks. But I, I one thing I've, I've tried to kind of wrap my head around is it really isn't clear in the storyline that we're given how the Maquis are actually organized. At least it's not to me. Maybe it is to you, Will. Um, like, how do they actually, like, organize and make decisions? And who, you know, do you have some insight in that? Because it wasn't clear to me at all. 
It's not. And I think that just shows you the limitations of of the storyline that was supposed to be used as literally a launching point for Voyager. And they try to pick it up. Deep Space Nine kind of picked it up because they kind of had to, but didn't really know what to do with it. So sometimes you see instances where there's some sort of democratic control. You probably see it the most in the episode Preemptive Strike. And that's not an accident because that's the early episodes of Maquis where I feel like Michael Piller, to his credit, and I think Michael Piller deserves a lot of credit for shaping a lot of what was good with Trek, but he doesn't get enough credit because it's overshadowed by Berman and other people. But he was the one that really started laying down these foundations. And he was saying, you know, in that, in that episode Preemptive Strike, they had these individual cells, right? Mateus and, and they had a little, almost like an individual council, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, these councils may not be aware of each other, right? But they're aware of the larger struggle. They do decide things amongst themselves. You know, is it con- consciously Marxist in any way? No. Are there imperfections? Yes. Are there contradictions? Absolutely, right? But you see some sort of collective decision-making a little bit, right? With that father figure, Mateus, that Roland really attaches to. He talks about with his, his crew there. You kind of sort of see it later on, but you see more of the opposite, though. You see someone like Cal Hudson kind of calling the shot because I used to be a former Starfleet officer. Tom Riker, you you know, I literally a transporter clone of a famous Starfleet officer. You know, you know, pushing his way. Uh, we've actually this this show believes he's the real one, and that the <laughs> uh, the Riker that you tra- follow for the series is in fact the clone. So. I mean, what a twist, though, right? That was actually, the, in fact, the case, right? And then, you know, of course, Eddington is another case in point of, like, the it becomes almost, you forget the Maquis storyline. It's just this personal showdown, Javert and yeah. Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean. And, and it just, yeah. you know, I get it why they did that, but it also takes so much away of what it is. And it shows you what the writers didn't really know what to do with it. Right. So it's really just a personal vengeance tale as opposed to why are they doing this? Right. What are the legitimate grievances? And you can tell they didn't know what to do with it because they did the, the writer thing. They are like, oh, um, let's just be writerly about it. And they're all killed. Done. And now we can tell our, yeah. our awesome war story, right? It's just, that's what happens. Well, so so let's fix it then, okay? So this, the show writers didn't tell us, like, how they organized and how they made decisions. Like, in, in your perspective, like, what would that structure look like? Or would there be structure? Well, I think so. You know, I, I do have a particular, I'm, I'm a Marxist, I'm a Leninist, I'm a Trotskyist, so I do have a particular tendency. And the tendency is, is you do need organization, right? But that organization does have to be democratic in the truest sense, right? Not bourgeois democracy, not democracy as a formality, but democracy in practice in, in every single aspect of your life. So that would be economic democracy, first and foremost. So where there are, where's production, where there's a social endeavor, right? There should be a collective body that makes that decision. Uh, there should be freedom of discussion, and unity in action, right? That's actually how you win strikes. Is, is there freedom in debate? But once that debate has been decided and, de- and agreed upon, then it, it, it holds the the majority the majority's decision should hold for the rest of it that's how you win a strike and and defend a picket line in the same way that's applied to the actions of the maquis ideally is that they would have freedom of discussion freedom of debate but once they decided upon things democratically they would they would hold on to it they would be able to elect the representatives but they could recall them at any time right the members themselves would be armed there wouldn't be a standing army that sets up itself apart from themselves that they would actually be the final arbiters to be able to to exercise that control it's less of an issue in star trek because of the money issue, but Lenin, St. Revolution, said a key aspect of workers' control is these leaders don't make more than the average wage of a worker. 
you don't you don't get to have these privileges that over time accumulate and then then you want to pass on these privileges to your offspring and the people that you know and that's exactly how bureaucracy emerges you create a different caste if you have better rations better pay and then you want to pass down those privileges that's when it really becomes something that's entrenched and probably the only other thing that i would mention that's very important for workers democracy is actual participation of the workers in the running of society which means a drastic shortening of the work deck right now again in star trek it doesn't have as much of these issues because it seems like it's already been resolved for the most part but in the real life right now people are working 80 hours a week, 40 hours a week, they can't actually participate in the running of society. So all of this is presupposed on you drastically shorting the work week, the work day with no loss in pay, that you can actually participate in these workers' soviets, these workers' councils, be these elected delegates, these, these types of stuff, as opposed to just worrying about working paycheck to paycheck, putting food on the table, those types of stuff. And in that scenario, those present the best possibilities for workers' democracy to genuinely survive and exist and then thrive. To get to a point where you can eliminate all these class contradictions, eliminate the conditions for which we struggle to begin with. And I think with the Maquis, the point should have been, we're all oppressed. We are oppressed by the Federation. Guess what? There are Cardassians that are oppressed by Central Command and the Obsidian Order. What if we unite? Workers of all worlds unite, as opposed to just saying, all Cardassians are evil, to hell with them. What if they united with the dissident movement? What if you united with the Remans on Romulus or the Klingons who weren't warriors on Kronos, who were like artists or what have you? What if they Look, united? If the Federation cared about women's rights, they would have bombed Ferenginar a long fucking time time ago that being said that's but like but like right like this I mean, sort of a throwaway someone, bit but like it yeah, is that yeah. is very much one of the problems of the prime someone directive would say right that, yeah. it's like oh well now i guess you have to starve sorry bye like sorry morlocks of here your e-lawyer get to eat you i don't know what to tell we can't help you you're too you're not evolved enough to be helped so based on what you just described, there's a lot of elements of what you just laid out in Klingon culture in the canon. There's that whole discussion early on in TNG when Will's going to go do a like a tour on a Klingon ship and they're teaching him about how, how it works and how you, know, you have an obligation to challenge your senior officer to a fight to the death if necessary, if they're abdicating their responsibility. And he's like, what the hell? That's like, how can you maintain order? That sounds like chaos. But that's like you literally just described like a situation situation where all the all the workers would be armed and like leaders could be recalled at will if necessary by force like Klingons managed to do that and and there was a whole discussion around how yeah like it sounds chaotic but it instills a sort of balance because everybody knows that that's how things could go down and and, and it sort of respects that process yeah yeah well, so Rachel's not here, so I'm going to have to start talking about custom versus law and prescriptive versus descriptive and that kind of stuff, because that's what we're getting into, Oh, and then into, I'll have right? to say something about how to maintain infrastructure <laughs> over galaxies. You'll need a bunch yeah, of guys with yeah, clipboards to write stuff down. It's a pretty stock episode. Yeah, we just got to get, get that out of the way. But um, uh, as, as it relates to the Klingons, right, you create a stable society maybe through having all this social accountability instead of having a bureaucracy kind of maintaining that stability have a um do it or i'll fucking kill you maintain that stability and these people will watch and cheer me on because they also agree that you're not doing your job so that's a great point that you brought up Corey. and i think if we, we apply we, we continue this analysis towards the klingons we could actually say that in a lot of ways it's 
very much a, a feudalistic society, right? They have these great houses. They own a lot of these properties. They own lands. A lot of the Klingon civil war that, you know, the House Duras and House of Moog get involved with is these great houses and they have to pledge fealty to each other. There's a strong vein of like, oh, women can't be, you know, chancellor or can't be served on the high council. All those types of things are massively contradictory, right? But there are elements there that could be progressive, that could move things forward. And I think that actually does track with real life history in our world in the sense that capitalism breaks at its weakest chain, right? So that's something that Marx and Engels didn't anticipate, which Lenin actually extrapolated upon, is that Marx, when he wrote the Communist Manifesto, anticipated that the revolution would be successful in a place like Germany, which at that time in 1848 was incredibly industrialized. It was incredibly advanced. It Spoiler had, alert, it didn't pan out for him. Didn't happen, didn't pan out, right? What ended up happening, right, was that there was a delay and there was a defeat of the revolutions in the advanced capitalist countries. But where did it break first? It actually broke in a semi-feudal country like czarist Russia, right? Semi-feudal, right? In terms of literally there was a huge peasantry, right? And a literal czar. Like, there's a king. There's a king. Yeah. And a literal czar, right? And the Klingon Empire, arguably, is a feudal society. So one could say that the revolutionary outbreak, the revolutionary emergence could happen in the weakest chain of space imperialism or, or you know, what we describe the Klingons to be, right? What if there was a genuine proletarian movement that emerged in the Klingon Empire that then was the beacon to which others throughout the quadrant rallied to, right? Who would have thought that it would emerge from the Klingon Empire those that talk about, you know, glory and killing and they're all savages, right? Imagine the irony of that. That's absolutely, in some ways, does track with actual human history right now. And that, that should be a great thing to say, like, man, what if there were revolutionaries on Kronos? They were all just warriors. They're all just Gowron and stuff like that. Why wouldn't you be able to unite with those people? That's great storytelling potential that I think modern Star Trek will never touch because it's too controversial. They're not even thinking of it in those terms. They're very liberal writers. So I'm not- I'm There's not, a cave of Klingons doing calculus under lock and key. And there's like, you, we gotta get out of here. These these key people are beating us up and making us build them spaceships. We're really good but at yeah, it. I mean, it but yeah. that's what could happen. And I think if people didn't have to worry about, I mean, under socialism, we didn't have intellectual property, private property, trademarks, and that kind of stuff. And Paramount wouldn't sue you into oblivion if you wrote something about Star Trek without approval. You could write a story like that. Imagine. Imagine if you wrote a story where, like, there was a legitimate social and political revolution on Kronos, and it actually spread throughout the galaxy because of all those conditions. I think the seeds of that are there in the finale of Deep Space Nine. I mean, the fact that Martok ends up leading the Klingon Empire and he's, you know, there's that whole storyline about how he was just a like a poor kid from the lowlands and, you yeah. know, he, he reached too high, but he worked his way up and earned a place of respect and leadership and he brought a different kind of vision into that role and was already talking about structural changes and then there's that conversation with Ezri saying like, yeah, the Klingon Empire is dying and I think it deserves to die. Like, I think that those seeds are already there in that part. Yeah, and I think not to get too sidetracked for the Maquis point of it, but in the episode of the Maquis, the two-part Space Nine, there is a Klingon in the background, right? There is a Klingon in the background of the Maquis. Sakona is a Vulcan. It's shown to be, they're drawing elements not just from humanity and Earth, but they're drawing elements from other member worlds of the Federation, right? So those are the really interesting nuggets that say there's a legitimate cause here for the Maquis, right? But obviously, they don't know what to do with it. So they have to ultimately just make it go away. Because they can't make our characters look too bad. They can't make Cisco look too bad. They can't make Picard look too bad, right? So they're going to have to make it go away. What if Maquis was a name like Zapatista that returned, you know, returned in spirit? 
I hope so. And I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, the fact that Michelle Forbes, who I love, didn't take on the role of Kira Narice in Deep Space Nine, which ended up being great because I love Nana Visitor as Kira. But I think and that's my ultimate headcanon, is that the fact that Rogue Laren is never really spoken about ever again after her defection. For me, that's my headcanon. It's like, actually, Rogue Laren was the one that began to put things together because of her experience as a Bajoran under the occupation, right? And in Starfleet, right? And did all those things. She was the one that picked up the pieces after what happened with Eddington, the Dominion, like she picked up the pieces and said, you know what? Maybe our struggle needs to be united with the struggle of everyone else. And like in my head canon, like Ro is like one of those people that figured it out. And maybe Star Trek don't touch her because I know if you're going to write her again, it's going to be very terrible and not going to be as good as it, my, our head canon will be. So that's my head canon. It's like Ro and people like her are the people that start to put the pieces together. Say, hey, maybe there's no war but the class war. Maybe workers of all worlds, workers of the quadrant, and ultimately all quadrants unite right not just alpha quadrant but belt quadrant gamma quadrant you know the jemadar are incredibly oppressed by the way just literally bred for war drugged like men talk about an oppressed lay right well there's an episode where julian is working with them in solidarity is like we won't want to work here anymore can you make us catch or sell white he's like i have no idea it's all good let's figure it out and he's like wow awesome yeah yeah so I want to assure you, actually, uh, from like a technical and production standpoint, you're very likely to ever hear from Ro Laren again for the same reason that Tom Paris is a different guy than the one that got Wesley almost expelled. Uh, because it's sort of a, the way writing structure works is that they would have to pay the original Ro Laren writers, the creator of the character, every time she came up. That's right. Which is why they didn't Tom Paris is Tom Paris. I prefer we prefer on this show to think of him as an exceptionally gifted identity thief, and thus uh, <laughs> managed to trick an admiral into thinking he was his son in sort of and what might be like a um dirty rotten scoundrels kind of way, where we're like now we're, our lies are like compressed against each other, and we can't like well yeah dad, and you're like um yes son that yes we are related shit uh roll with it and like anyway that being said so roll Aaron is free to roam the gal alpha quadrant in your imaginations liberating the workers of the world or, or the galaxy rather and you're unlikely to get that smashed against anything obviously the maquis is a storyline that could fill many podcasts or many hours so like we just scratched the surface there's so much to talk about it specific episodes of characters yeah. about it and then you know ultimately not getting to the Cardassian question the, the Bourgeois resistance which is all really close to it well I think overall that's why I think it's underappreciated it asks all these really good questions it's a really legitimate shade of grey for a line from a TNG episode it is a legitimate good shade of grey it's pretty good storytelling for a time and it really holds up still doesn't mean it's imperfect doesn't mean it's full of contradictions but what in life under capitalist society is full of contradictions for us to extrapolate the good stuff from it and then build our own headcanon just like good Star Trek too right film the gap. So I think that's why people just don't really appreciate the storyline. I think like what it kind of sneakily did is just like, yeah, guys, it adds some real depth to this universe where up to this point, I really haven't ever really gone back to that. It's always just been Starfleet, the Starfleet ideal, so great and whatever. And they've kind of moved away from all of that 24th century stuff. Lower decks have started to go back. They've kind of left all that stuff behind. And I think that's unfortunate because I think it's a really good storyline that doesn't get attention that the Dominion War gets, the Klingons get, or like the Borg gets. But like it's as epic and as substantive, uh, you know, storyline as there is in Star Trek. It's probably one of the best. People just definitely kind of get what was going on there. Well, we definitely need to have you back because like you said, there's a lot of different angles to explore on this. So we're, we're definitely going to have you back and talk about this some more. But really interesting kind of way to dive into the subject. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I saw your original tweet about it. It's like, oh, well, then, yes, let's do that as many times as you'd like to, because like the Maquis are great. Again, there's so many good ones. There's the real Riker. There's the Vulcans. There's all the Bajorans. Wonderful. I don't know. If that's, I mean, yeah, they'd get Cardassians if they got, if they just had a little bit better outreach. But it's hard to do door to door on Cardassia Prime. Like, pamphleting is difficult because they're like, hi, who are you? And you're not Spoony Head. And they're like, hey, I don't think <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. But they're like, yeah, it's our word. Anyway, um, I don't have a game for that for us today because i think it's a good time to end i think we're really thankful to have you tell us where people can find you and your stuff i mean we've done it before but plugs plug plug some plug something you can find me on twitter at the Manor, aka the star trek communist you can find me on instagram at, at proletarian trek and the best you that's our feature that organizing life so the organization i organize my life is called socialist revolution which is part of an international international marxist tendency you can check us out at marxist.com or social.org and then yeah. just uh, tweet at me anytime you want to talk star trek marxism or even good food because i cook a lot too so any of those things won't have to talk and it's always going to be the show thank you man. Oh, I love it. It was great to have you. Um, well, it has been a joy to talk to you. It always is. We will be, yeah, having you back to talk more about this. You might win the prize of Gay Space Communism's Jeffrey Combs. And if you'd like to join us in our in our general use catchphrase, space the rich, everybody. Love y'all. Space the rich.